0: Welcome, friend, to our weekly garden party. We hope you brought along your questions because it's time to dish the dirt. On The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin, exclusively on Zoomer Radio. Well, good morning and
1: welcome along to The Garden Show uh, featuring Charlie Dobbin, who from her home shall dispense all this wondrous information she has locked up in that noggin of hers. She's uh, on the line right now from the home in Prince Edward County. I'm Frank Proctor, by the way. Good morning, Charlie.
2: Good morning, Frank Proctor. How are things at your side of the world? Well, you know, not
1: bad. Well, terrific, come to think of it. You look at the sky out there. Beautiful uh-huh. day on the way. Or, yeah, yeah. Lots of, lots of gardening going to be going on uh, over these uh, next couple of days for sure. And uh, well, how what's happening in your place right now?
2: Oh my goodness! You know, it's interesting. I don't remember Sean James. He's yes. been on our show before. Yep. I um, I saw this really odd looking insect. So I sent him a picture of the insect, and I go, you know what this is?" And he said, I think it's some kind of tussock moss. And I said, should I kill it or, or should I look it up? <laughs> and he said, he said oh, don't kill it. They're generally not a problem. And then I said, I wish you were here to help me identify some of these birds. And then he put it in perfect language and said, you live on a bird highway. And it's true. Oh. The Prince Edward County is a jumping point for migrating birds, right? Because we are so close to the American side of Lake Ontario. And, uh, and oh, it's. I just my my mind is boggled, and I know so little about birds, and I have so much to learn. But uh, it's just beautiful here.
1: Oh, I'm going to give you an up to get my bird feeder in just a moment here. Okay. With with raccoons in mind, uh, <coughs> but first let me get the numbers on the air for the folks who are waiting to call you and ask you a question, Charlie. Mm-hmm. In Toronto, call four one six three six zero zero seven forty. Anywhere in the province, it is toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty, and our Our little monster goes this way. If you uh, want to call, early call often. uh, One question per call. And if you happen to be a first-time caller, let Carlos, our operator, know. And just before you hit the airwaves... You're going to get the uh, ring that Get your garden wings. <laughs> okay. So, uh, we had a suggestion from Joe Rosen, I believe it was, in uh, the city of New York, uh, mm-hmm. to help uh, get the, the squirrels to avoid my bird feeder to uh, slather vapor rub on the post that holds the bird feeder. Uh and I did that, and by golly, it works! So I thought, isn't this grand? Maybe it'll keep the raccoons away because they've now, three nights, have uh, taken the darn thing right off the hanging thing, and tried to plunder the seeds in there. So I, my only my only option now is to bring the darn thing indoors at night. After as you correctly noted, the birds go to sleep anyway. You know.
2: Well, yeah, most of them do. The, um, But remember, like the first night, like you texted me and you said, "Oh, it worked! It worked! The records didn't touch." The maple rub bird feeder pole. Yeah. But then it took them, what, 24 hours?
1: To figure it out.
2: <laughs> I figure they got on Amazon. And then they just got themselves a little uh, nose yeah. protection from that menthol and camphor and stuff. And then they were set up and they were like, okay, we can handle this. Yeah. And, <laughs> and they went right ahead and climbed. Did you know, raccoons are amazing. They're so clever. Oh,
1: oh, by the way, uh, let me give a little plug to Walrus Magazine. Uh-huh. Um, I, I'm uh, a subscriber to it. So I don't know whether I guess it's available on uh, you know racks in in stores. So oh
2: forth. I don't know if they print it. I think yeah. it's an
3: online
1: magazine. Oh, Is that right? Oh, okay. I think. Uh, June twenty uh, the June twenty twenty one issue. Anyway, fabulous story in here from uh, Suzanne Simard, a mm-hmm. professor of forest ecology at the University of BC, and her research shows how trees cooperate, share resources. Mm-hmm. And communicate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's just kind of amazing that um, as she um, looks at this the forest, with each unearthling, uh, of unearthing, rather, the framework unfolded, an old tree was connected to every one of the younger trees around it.
2: Right. And, and they didn't even have to be the same species. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but now, one tree helps out another.
2: Yeah. She likens it to, like, to what we would consider how the World Wide Web works. With all the different computers talking to each other and sharing information, but underground, this is happening in the forest as as trees connect through their roots, and not just the roots, but uh, fungus that is touching the different roots as well. So it's all part of that that web, and. A, fungus is called mycorrhiza, and it's just so important. And she, she was able to prove this a number of years ago, uh, and she didn't have a lot of support from her other faculty members, but she had a feeling that this was happening, and she was able to prove it, and um, she's becoming quite well-known for her... Uh, very different way of looking at the world. And uh, there's Suzanne Simard, S-I-M-A-R-D, if you Google her, well, you're going to mention the article, but she has done some TED Talks, so you can watch video of her as well. Oh,
1: great. Yeah, good stuff. All righty. You know what? We're up to our first break here. In fact, I'm okay. over time, just a little tad, so we better hurry along let folks know that you're awaiting their questions. And uh, we shall return, both Charlie and I, here on The Garden Show from Zuma Radio.
0: Fur and feathers and bugs of all size. There's more going on in the garden than you realize. Should small creatures become a big problem, then you've got the Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin exclusively on Zuma Radio. Why, thank
1: you very much. And uh, we're going to go to the phone lines now. Charlie, uh, I was shocked. I'm looking at where <coughs> our caller, Jane, is calling in from Chatham. That's <coughs> where I started my career in radio at CFCO 61 years ago. Ooh, is that what shocked <laughs> you, the
2: 61?
1: <laughs> Ye gods. <laughs> anyway, Jane, good morning and welcome to the show.
2: Hi, right, good morning. Thank you. Morning. morning. I love your new house. I saw oh, it thanks. on uh, Facebook. Ah, yeah. Oh, yeah. great. Beautiful. It's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah.
4: Um, today, I want to know about digging up tulip bulbs and daffodil bulbs at this time of year and transplanting them.
2: Oh, I wouldn't. Uh, only if they're finished flowering, but if possible, wait until they're even towards the end of their leaf process because remember what happens they finish blooming but then there's lots of green leaves that have to be allowed to stay and grow and absorb sunlight and fatten up the bulb for next year so if you can hold off i would hold off until the leaves are truly yellow but you can still see where they are in the garden and at that point you can easily dig them up cut off cut off all the yellow foliage and transplant to wherever you want them to be for next spring okay that sounds wonderful Okay. Go. Thanks for calling.
3: Thank, Thank you, you very you. much,
1: Jane. Bye-bye. As we wave bye bye to Jane, uh, let you know that we have several lines open right now. So give a call to in Toronto four one six three six zero zero seven forty, or anywhere in the province, toll free at one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. Okay, I gotta, uh,
2: uh, yes. I just want to mention. Um, I had meant to mention this right off the top. I do have a note here from the Beaverton Horticultural Society. They are hosting uh, their annual plant perennial sale. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this is interesting because obviously this wouldn't have happened last year. So they are hosting their sale. It is a two-day event, Sunday, May 23rd, and Monday, May 24th, both days from 11 to 3 p.m. Of course, it's an outdoor event at White's Creek Flower Farm, which is on Concession 7. Uh, in Beaverton, all capital COVID rules apply. So remember, obviously, social distancing, full mask, etc. But uh, but that's fun. I mean, I feel like we're transitioning through this uh, pandemic. We're we're slowly but surely, you know, ca- getting back to some. Regular activities.
1: Yes, indeed, and, and with the new uh, vaccines rolling in in uh, mm-hmm. um, larger amounts, I'm I think we're going to have some of those, uh, you know, second shots move up a little bit in, on the date.
2: We yeah, hope anyway. I hope the, that the frontline workers, the teachers, uh, you know, healthcare workers, the long-term care workers, I hope they're the priority for the number two shot. You've got it.
1: Yep. Okay, uh, back to uh, an email that we received from Dan Hepburn, uh, writes in from Walkerton in Bruce County, about five miles north of Walkerton, actually. He sent you a photograph, and he says, Hey, Charlie, I'm wondering what the problem is with the lilacs and what can be done. This lilac bush is about 144 feet long, and 15 feet wide, and in the last five years or so, it's not doing so well. It was already here when we arrived in 61. (laughs) Soil, uh, light sandy, they have uh, no care, just appreciated. They are only 24 feet from the edge of the pavement on a road that gets an absurd amount of salt, he says. Is it possible the salt is to blame? So, what have you got to uh, say to Mm -hmm. Dan?
2: Well, the end did send a number of pictures, so thank you, that does help, Mm -hmm. but and, and you notice he also says if you're downwind from them when they were uh, blooming, yep. just in the tiniest bit of a breeze, it was beautiful. And, yes, don't we, don't we love our lilacs? Everybody knows lilacs. But think of how old these plants are. They were there when he arrived in 1961. So he, this lilac, you know, forest is 60-plus years old. So what could possibly be wrong? Well, notice there's been absolutely no care. There's only salt. Not a lot going on. Very nice for the lilacs. So I can't imagine Dan's going to want to do this. But if he did, what they need is to be cut down. They need those big old lilacs need to be literally go through with a chainsaw. Just cut them all down to about a foot tall, and they will, believe it or not, all grow back. Now make sure, and I'm sure there's two kinds of lilacs. There's just a regular uh, species lilac we call it. Mm And those are the ones that we do see, you know, were planted around the farmstead and then didn't die. Just, you know, got bigger and bigger and and broader and wider. Then there's the French lilacs. French lilacs don't get as big. They don't live as long and they are grafted. So they have that bulbous, swollen stem happening down pretty close to ground level. So French lilacs, we would not do what I'm recommending here, but uh, species or, or wild lilacs, Syringo vulgaris, vulgaris meaning um, just regular um, lilacs, can be rejuvenated by being cut down to ground level. It'll take a few years. They will come back. They'll be healthier than ever. They'll have flowers. But to support this process, you would also want to do something for the soil. You want to add some compost. Get some organic matter. You can't do anything about that salt, and that salt does get neutralized by the rain and the snow. But, um, yeah, you need to get some nutrients into that soil, and the rejuvenation part comes from cutting them all down and then feeding the roots, and they will come back beautifully.
1: Okay. Uh, there's been a flurry of activity on the phone lines. We have, we have the, the lines just jammed right now, so we have to take our next break here and then come back to say hi to Lorraine in Cambridge next on The Garden Show from Zuma
4: Radio daffodils and daisies bluebells and begonias forsythia and foxgloves, marigolds magnolia lavender and lupins dahlias delphiniums stalks fox hollyhocks tulips and
0: sweet williams you've picked the right place for everything floral this is The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin, exclusively on Zoomer Radio.
1: Hey Charlie, you know my love of alliteration, so let's canter, <laughs> let us canter off to Cambridge to <laughs> say hi to Lorraine. Good morning, Lorraine. Welcome to the show.
2: Good morning. Good morning. Did you leave your, host, your horse outside? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Thank goodness. Yeah. Um, okay, two or three years ago I planted black and white tulips. Mm-hmm. I seen them out, and the same amount. And the next year they came out with okay. The next year there was less black ones, and this year there was thirty white ones and two black ones. <laughs> I did buy some replacements, and I didn't get them in to the ground last fall. Should I wait till this fall, or put, put them in now? And why does this happen? Okay, so um, tulips, many of the beautiful colors and shapes, and um, you know, just fancy tulips that we appreciate are highly hybridized, meaning that they have been very much selected for interesting and unusual colors or fragrances or fringes or, you know, multi things like that. Black, of course, it would be a tulip that is by no means naturally occurring, uh, which is not to suggest that it's been, you know, invented in a laboratory or anything. It's just um, been chosen and selected and propagated for sale uh, to consumers. It is not a long-lasting tulip. Neither are many of the hybridized tulips. You're lucky to get two or three years of the original beauty out of those highly hybridized and highly bred tulips. So the fact that they have lessened in quantity, quality, all the way along is not at all surprising. That's exactly what happens with most tulips. There are some tulips that does not happen with, um, you know, just a plain old you know, uh, sort of, well, number one species tulips, which tend to be quite small, are nat- they naturalized. They do not disappear. They actually spread, but they're, they're not big, fancy tulips. Um, and, and probably the whites that are doing well are, again, closer to the original tulip and are able to, you know, continue to look the same year after year versus the black, which was just not capable of doing that at all. Um, they probably just shriveled up and died out. They pro- they're probably not even there. And you mentioned you had bought some tulips, I assume, last fall. I would never buy them in the ground. I would go to the bag that they're in right now, and I would check. I think you'll probably find they're all shriveled up. They don't want to spend the winter in a bag. So uh, if there's any meat to them, if there's some solidity to those bulbs, and, and you can actually, there's something to plant, Absolutely. Get them out in the ground. They may come up a little bit with something green. You know, let them do what they have to do. Let them get some roots in. Let them grow some green leaves. Um, support them however you can. But they probably are, are
3: compost. Okay.
4: Thank you very much. Very Thanks, good. Lorraine.
1: Thank you, Lorraine, for calling in. This is The Garden Show from Zoomer Radio. Have a nice note here from John Attard, who listens in every day, uh, to the, of, uh, every Saturday it is, mm-hmm. and uh, he makes special reference to the guest we had on, uh, a special guest, Moses Neimer, talking mm-hmm. about his plum tree, the
3: mm-hmm.
1: tree that uh, offers up 40 varieties of fruit. Anyway, he, he was quite excited about that and hopes that he's going to have a chance to uh, once, uh, once it's uh, uh, sort of unveiled in High Park to be invited to the unveiling uh, <laughs> the but <gala>. he, <laughs> he asks the question here uh, I planted garlic but some didn't take at all, why? and then he adds uh, Charlie he keep up the good work, can't wait for Saturday to hear more great info oh and isn't this nice, he says give my, give my regards to Frank and be safe so mm-hmm. John Attard, there you go what, what do you have to say to him on that regard?
2: Yeah, thank you, John. Um, and John, for people that are listeners, just like John is, for the last whatever multi years we've been on the air, John is a fruit tree grower himself, and that's why he's sort of over the moon with the idea of what's going on with uh, Moses's plum. Uh, but but um, and John has is originally from Malta, and so he has Bambinella, which is a Maltese kind of pear, and of course he wants Moses to get grafting some of his bumbanellas onto his plum tree, but that's not going to happen, John, because this tree, the tree of 40 fruit, is stone fruits only. So that's peaches, nectarines, cherries, plums, and apricots. So sorry about that. Uh, garlic tips. All right. Why didn't the garlic come through like he, he said some um, didn't take? So tips on being successful with garlic include plant only the biggest and healthiest garlic cloves you can find. So that's in the fall or late summer. Go out there shopping for garlic, get the biggest and the healthiest, uh, and plant those. Um, Plant later than you would think. Plant after Thanksgiving, but before Halloween. So towards the end of October, you want it to be cool enough that these plants will settle in and not grow a lot. But then again, you do want them to settle in and get the roots growing. Avoid nitrogen. If you crank too much nitrogen around garlic, you will not end up with a good crop. So, of course, we always want to have good quality compost in our soil, lots of organic matter, but not a lot of uh, high-nitrogen fertilizer. Plant your, your garlics about six inches apart. If they're too crowded, you'll see them not come up well, and three to five inches deep. If you are going to mulch them after you plant them, then that's go go about three inches deep. But if you're not mulching, and I mean mulching with leaves or straw or bark chips, then you can go about three inches deep or five inches deep with no mulch. So thanks,
1: John. Okay. Uh, to the phone lines we go once again out to Ancaster, and Paul's on the line. Good morning, Paul. Welcome to the show.
3: Hello, Paul. And uh, I have a comment that I wanted to make after listening to one of your callers about some problems with raccoons and oh, bird feeders, yeah. I think it was. And <laughs> yeah. anyways... Uh, my idea, uh, tried and true over the years, was uh, a crazy carpet. You know, you sh- get kids going yeah. down uh, a hill mm. and they slide on this plastic crazy carpet. Yeah. Mm. Well, I wrap a cedar pole in that, and mm. squirrels, you just can't get up it. <laughs> hey, that's clever. <laughs> and so I put about two of them, staple it on a cedar pole, put my bird feeder on top, mm. and... Uh, <laughs> that's it well, Watch no. them slide hey. up and down <laughs> that's pretty <Yeah>. darn good <laughs> and you know the squirrels still get a chance to eat some of the seeds because <laughs> they fall down from the bird feeder but sure. they just don't get to go up and then empty it all at once
0: Yeah, right.
3: does that work yeah. on raccoons? pardon? does that work on raccoons? Uh, oh definitely, nothing can climb the pole So that's if, a if, heck of an I, idea I've, I uh. live in the country and I got uh opossums raccoons skunks there's uh there's nothing that gets up that pull
1: <laughs> pretty well a menagerie at your place Good. Oh, hey i'm going to take that idea under consideration for sure paul thank you do you have okay. another question
3: well for you Charlie? have a great day yeah. just wanted to make a quick oh, comment on that one yeah. that's thank great i appreciate it. that Yeah, thank you
1: nobody more interested in deterring raccoons than i yeah uh, and i love it
2: when people have tips so remember yeah. listeners everybody's listening you don't need to just call with a question you can call with Comments as well.
1: Yeah, exactly. I have a nice note here from Patricia McLean, who says she loves the show. Uh, Patricia says, I'm wondering what's the best prop, uh, oh, best to prop up a Solomon's seal, and is it okay to transplant them now? What would you recommend a good soil for the flower garden? I don't know what Solomon's seal is.
2: Oh, I do. Yeah, Solomon's seal is, um, you might even have some at your place. It grows about a meter tall, so about three feet tall. At this time of year, uh, it almost looks like a bit ferny. Like it's a single stem with leaves lining the stem. And then it does kind of a crooked top. Like it crooks over on the top. And then it gets these lovely cascading white flowers that hang from below the stem. So it's it's a very... it's very spring flower, a uh, flowering plant. It's a perennial, herbaceous perennial. It grows in the shade. This is what we love about Solomon seal. Mm-hmm. You can put it in the worst soil and the shadiest spot, and it will grow. But it does get fairly tall. And I'm wondering if that's what uh, Patricia's asking. She says, "I'm wondering what's the best time to prop up uh-huh. a Solomon seal, or is she meaning pot up? Prop up? You shouldn't have to prop up. I'm not a fan of propping up plants. Let plants. I mean. If it's in a really windy spot, the wind will knock it over. Uh, So you're right, you might want to put, you know, stick a few little branches, just twigs, right, from your your bush, wherever you are. I'm not sure she doesn't say. Just a few little, you know, um, bits and pieces of branches stuck in the ground around the Solomon seal will stabilize it. Don't try tying it up or wiring it or doing anything like that. Just provide a little bit of support around the plant. Once you have one, you'll have more. The, the, the clump just gets bigger and bigger. So um, be prepared to just kind of support the clump if that's the case. Uh, I would not transplant them now. The rule of thumb is a spring flowering perennial is transplanted in the fall, and a summer or fall blooming perennial is transplanted in the spring. So right now we've got things blooming like Ibdicentia or Bleeding Heart. We've got the Solomon Seal. We've got the peonies coming you got all kinds of sort of early season flowering plants, either in bud or flowering now. So now is not the time to transplant. Wait until the fall to do that if you can. And a good soil for the flower garden is any, you know, good quality, well-drained, uh, um, high in organic matter kind of soil. So if you're buying soil for the flower garden and it's in a bag, you can't smell it, but you can certainly read what's in it and see what the, you know, if it meets your budget. If you're buying soil that's going to be delivered, you know, by the cubic yard, then at least you can go to the supplier. You can touch the soil, smell the soil, look at the soil, make sure it smells good, make sure it smells Fertile and fresh and and, and makes you think about a a forest, kind of a a good smell. And once you've got that going on, that's going to be a good soil for your garden.
1: Excellent. Okay. Thank you very much for the nice note, Patricia. I hope you got all that information. Now, let's go back to the phone lines. There's Nancy in Hagersville. Good morning, Nancy. Welcome to the show.
4: Good morning. Morning. I was just wondering, I have a, it's like a variegated maple tree. Oh, yeah. And I noticed the last time I went under it, it's got, there's a couple of small limbs that have some kind of grease or, or black tar on it.
2: Now? This time of year? Yeah. So it's, it's, in, it's in the full, well not full leaf, but it's in leaf right now? Oh yeah. And is all of it looking variegated or do you see some branches that are <clears throat> straight green? Green oh. leaves, straight green leaves. Sorry, I didn't hear your answer.
4: No, uh, most of it is all right. There's only like two branches. I didn't. I tried to see if there was any any more on the other branches, but it seemed to be all right. The, this black stuff. You mean? Yeah. Um. Well,
2: okay. So that's a, It's to my mind, that's a weird thing to see at this time of year. We do very commonly see black spots on, particularly Norway maples, which is what this is, uh, in the fall. But uh-huh. it, this time of year, it's a bit unusual. So, the, the variegated maple is called the harlequin maple. So, that's the, the actual cultivar.
4: Um, it's, and not, why, it's not on the leaves, it's on the branch itself.
2: Right. So it, but you say it looks like greasy, so it's kind of shiny and black?
4: Yeah. Well, the first I noticed it got on, on my pant leg. And oh, yeah. I couldn't figure out where it was coming from the first time, and the second time it went around, it got on my, it got on the lawn, the riding lawnmower, and oh. I thought it was like grease. Oh, huh. Unless somehow um, on okay. the tree, but <laughs> yeah. Well, whenever we see any kind of oozing of
2: anything uh, through the bark of a tree, we automatically have to jump to you know to into like you know nine one one mode. It's it's I I can't truly do a diagnosis from a distance, but um, it could be a bacterial infection, it could be a fungal infection, or it could be a viral infection. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. Whenever you've got that oozing, it's likely sap, like actual, you know, clear sap that has now got fungus growing and making it turn black. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't necessarily mean this this whole problem started with a fungus, but on the surface, the black stuff you're seeing is likely fungus growing on sap, what I would do is I would uh, find a certified arborist in your neighborhood, Uh because this is a nice tree. This is a tree that is probably a pretty important focal point on on your property, and it's, it's not something you want to risk losing. So I would uh, find, like I said, a certified arborist, somebody who knows their trees, uh, ask them to come in for a consultation. Generally speaking, uh, they do not charge for consultations. They will charge if they're going to do some work for you, but they will swing by and, and look at whatever you need looked at. That's, that would be my impulse is find out what somebody, you know, on site who knows what to look for uh, recommends. Uh, it could be just a case of doing some you know some removal of some branches and some you know cleaning up of problems where there's been cracks in the bark. You know sometimes the cracks happen because of the, the frost or the the sun beating down on the bark in the winter. like all different things affect the um, you know bark of trees. but the mm-hmm. main thing is you want to avoid allowing that to continue happening, and you don't want sap losing out of out of bark of trees if you can avoid it. Would it be all right to cut off the small piece, or um, if it's just a little tiny branch, I mean a little, you know, tip sort of branch, absolutely cut it off and burn it. Don't don't keep it. Okay. Uh, if it's anything major, then I would get, bring somebody in to take a look.
4: All right, okay. Thank you. okay.
2: Thanks Thank very you very much, much, Nancy. Yeah, I hope you get Thanks that problem. Thanks Yeah,
1: yeah that, that sounds like a nasty problem, doesn't it?
4: Well,
2: yeah, from afar it does, actually. Yeah,
1: that's right. Uh, I have a note here from Janet uh, Donnelly, who mentioned she loves the show and listens every week. And uh, she says, I'm not sure if you can help with my rhododendron, which doesn't look too healthy. I don't think she sent you a picture on this. But anyway, she, she helps out by saying, I live in Mississauga. This rhododendron was planted in my backyard last year. It was healthy and blooming. I was expecting to see some flower buds this spring, but I see a lot of brown leaves. The area of the backyard gets full sun in the afternoon. Is there anything I can do to revive it? Or just get a new one this year? And if I do get a new one, how do I keep it in good shape for next year? Well, there you go.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's a pretty sad-looking plant. She did send a picture. Uh, okay. Thank you, Janet. Um, Right, so a couple of things. We love a rhododendron. We love the blooms in the spring because that's when they burst forth with all kinds of bright colors. Um, So what are you going to do about this? Number one, before you plant a rhododendron, find a spot that is not full sun in the afternoon, it's the opposite. It's okay to have full sun in the morning, uh, but better yet, have no full sun at all. Only have dappled, half-day, you know, bright, reflected sun. So rhododendrons do not like full sun. That's why you're seeing that burning and browning on the tips. So once you've found that perfect location where it's gentle sun, you will amend the soil extensively with peat moss, and with pine needles or spruce needles, if you have any of those kicking around, because you need to lower the pH in order for the rhododendron to thrive. They like a pH that's well below neutral. Our natural soils are in the neutral area, you know, 6.8, 6.7, and you need something, you need down to five, like 5.5, 5.8 pH to have happy rhodos. So find your location, fix your soil, you can always do a pH test to see what your pH is before you plant the rhododendron. Get it in the ground, water thoroughly, and um, enjoy it this year. Now, as fall comes along, next, you know, as we uh, get through our spring and summer into fall, the flower buds form on the rhododendrons in the fall. So you will know before winter comes whether you have blooms coming the next year spring. And no pruning whatsoever. Uh, Generally, if it's a windy spot, we wrap some burlap to protect from the wind. Uh, And you will, in its second season, fertilize your rhododendrons with rhododendron food, which has got extra sulfur in it to keep that that pH down. So it's a, it is a bit of a, you have to work a bit with rhododendrons, but you know, if you have a good spot, you know, lots of, it's got to be a real kind of a woodsy soil, like lots of good bark and, and, you know, again, that kind of forest. It's the, rhododendrons naturally grow on the edges of forests because they love all that really, you know, heavy woodsy soil, but then they like a little bit of sun a little bit of shade and lots of shelter from the wind.
1: Okay. Um, Russell from Scarborough is on the line waiting patiently. We shall scurry to Scarborough in moments next on The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin.
0: Don't change stations just because the weather changes. Garden tips and advice all year round. This is The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin, exclusively on Zoomer Radio. All righty. Charlie, as promised,
1: here's Russell
0: from Scarborough
1: on the line. Good morning, Russell. Hey, hello, Russell. Go ahead.
3: Charlie, good morning, Frank.
2: Morning. Morning.
3: Uh, I have a question for you, uh, Charlie. Um, on a previous program, they were talking about fertilizer for tomato plants.
2: Yeah.
3: And uh, you uh, you and uh, the uh, uh, person was saying uh, you can make a, a formula at home. Uh, can you remember the ingredients that was in it? Fertilizer for tomatoes. I'm,
2: well, I'm just trying to remember fertilizer specifically for tomatoes. Maybe the context that came up was um, it's like any it's always better to feed your vegetables, flowers, trees, everything with what we call a slow release fertilizer. Um, you will have. Steady, slow feeding. You'll have steady, slow growth of your plants. The difference between tomatoes and everything else is that tomatoes, by virtue of having such big, large fruits on them, can sometimes suffer from a lack of calcium. And maybe what you're remembering is we were talking about eggshells and we were talking about crushing up eggshells and using them around the tomatoes as a slow Um, form of calcium to be released to the tomatoes. And, of course, crushed up eggshells also provide that grit, that sharp little gritty uh, um, amendment to the soil, which can be quite effective at uh, lacerating the bellies of any crawling slugs or snails or, like I had last year, tomato hornworms. So uh, very effective that way as well. So maybe that's what you're thinking of.
1: Uh, Charlie, I think uh, the gentleman is referring to what Werner recommends. His, oh, his uh,
2: Werner! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I forgot about what. You know what? That is on my website. I don't think I have it in front of me right here. <laughs> I
1: there. don't have it in front of me either, but uh, uh,
2: song, yeah. I can grab it. But I'm not sure where it is. Um, okay, tell you what, uh, Russell. Let me um, let me go to my website, <laughs> and, <laughs> and we'll let you go and. Um, but com under tips, you will find Warner's recipe. But before we're finished and off the air at 9 o'clock, uh, or 10 o'clock, sorry, I will, I will read you that recipe, okay?
1: All right. Excellent.
2: Okay. <laughs> and, a, and a big shout-out to Warner. I yeah. Forgot, yeah. Where's my brain? I forgot about that one. Suddenly, but, and then
1: I, I couldn't remember Warner's name myself, and I was going crazy. Well, and Russell just,
2: yeah, it, it does require uh, pop bottles. That's right. The two-liter pop bottle. So get out there and get yourself, start drinking some pop, <laughs> and then you can follow the recipe properly. <laughs> right,
1: right, you are. Let me get, refer to a, a, an email here from Mary Stewart, who mm-hmm. says, uh, Would you recommend a lawn-leveling rake? We need to fill in some low spots on our lawn. They seem to be very expensive. Any suggestions?
2: <laughs> I don't know what she means by expensive, to tell you the truth. No. Yes. If you want to fill in uh, any kind of uh, you want to level your lawn, and you're going to rake soil mm-hmm. into the low spots. You're going to need some kind of a rake. Um, a flat, what we call a flat rake or a straight rake uh, is does the best job because you can drag it across, and it will just sort of go across the, the existing grass. And, of course, you always try and mow first and then start filling your holes with some good quality topsoil. Um, a stiff fan rake could work. Because um, again, you just you just drag that rake across the the existing lawn, and the soil will will get pushed down into the holes, but a flat rake does the best job and I can tell you I, I did because we're doing so much top dressing here, I bought a very like i think it's like twenty four inches or more wide uh, aluminum flat rake on Amazon now yeah it wasn 't cheap I think it was like fifty dollars but um it certainly is quite, more, quite efficient, and when you're on a big property, you need big tools. That, that, that I've learned. <laughs> okay.
1: We're going to give you uh, a little bit of a break, Charlie, so you can jump online to find out Werner's recipe. We can pass that along uh, to the gentleman who, who called earlier. In the, in the meanwhile, let's uh, do a little break here as we uh, approach the final segment of The Garden Show on
0: Zoomer Radio. Fur and feathers and bugs of all size. There's more going on in the garden than you realize. Should small creatures become a big problem, then you've got The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin. Exclusively on Zoomer Radio. Uh,
1: just a note to Dan online from Elmwood. We're coming to you, Dan, very shortly. But in the meantime, Charlie, did you mm-hmm. uncover that recipe that uh, was offered up by uh, Werner?
2: I did, I all did. All right. So I was wrong about pop bottles. It was water bottles. So just, you know, regular plastic water bottle. So for each tomato plant, insert the neck. So take off the the little screw top. The neck of a plastic water bottle gets inserted near the plant into the soil. But first you cut the bottom out of the bottle. Mm -hmm. So there it is. It's like a little funnel, right? Right. Inserted into the ground near the plant. Every week. So you set your calendar. Every week, scoop two teaspoons of skim milk powder and one teaspoon of Epsom salt into the open bottle. So two teaspoons of skim milk powder, one teaspoon of Epsom salt into that open end of the bottle. Run water into the bottle until all the powder has dissolved. So and, And that will take whatever time it takes. And that uh, will the dissolved Epsom salts and skim milk powder will of course go into solution and go down and feed the roots. And Warner swears he has the best tomatoes in the world. Yeah, he really does. Yeah, yep. Okay. And other people have tried the recipe and they've been pretty impressed as well.
1: Good stuff. Okay, Hope that, <laughs> that, I think it was Russell who called in about that. Yeah. All righty, Dan in Elmwood. Welcome to the show, Dan. Good
3: day. Good morning. Yeah, we've got some uh, lilacs up here, and they're not doing so well. Um, a bunch of that lilacs have been there for, for at least 60 years, uh, and they're right beside the road. And I'm suspicious it's salt that's the problem, but I don't know.
2: Dan, did you send me an email on this? Yes, I did. Yeah, and you know what? We addressed your question earlier in the show. Oh, Okay. Okay, so if you listen back, listen to the podcast when it comes out, probably this Tuesday or Wednesday, just go to am740.ca, you know, go to my show, podcast, listen to the show, you will hear the answer to your question
1: excellent, thank there you. There you go. Okay, Dan. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. And a reminder uh, that the emails are always welcome, of course. We, mm-hmm. can, uh, we can address them as soon as we can, but if you'd like to send oh, an we. email. I uh,
2: like that we. <laughs>
1: thank you very much. The loyal we. <laughs> of course, of course. Uh, just send your email along to the person who shall deal with that <laughs> particular email. That would be Charlie Dobbin at c. Dobbin, D-O-B-B-I-N at M-Z media.com. Okay, I've got a note here from uh, Ingrid Blechner uh, in Niagara-on-the-Lake. She says, "Uh, Charlie, I need some help with my clematis or clematis. Ernest Markham is the name. It was quite small when I bought it two years ago. Last year, it thrived, grew well, blossomed. This spring, I see no leaves growing in the stems. They're actually still bare, which makes me believe that the Clematis didn't survive. Can you recommend uh, a Clematis that grows in clay-like soil? So there you go.
2: Hmm. She's writing from Niagara-on-the-Lake, yeah. and this email is about a week old. So I bet you things have changed. Here's the, here's the bottom line. Ernest Markham is a very old, reliable cultivar. So you've chosen a beautiful Clematis. Never, never be impatient with Clematis. You plant them, and you wait. It takes at least two years for them to get settled in and happy and and ready to really, you know, go crazy and grow the 10 feet that grow every year. Make sure that it's got something to grow up. You know, you've got some kind of a trellis or fence or something for the clematis. Make sure that um, soil sounds good. Uh, Do not let, make sure that, we always say that clematis wants its roots or its feet in the shade and its head in the sun. So we want shade around the base, even if it means planting a small shrub or a perennial in front of the plant, so it's shading the the roots. They like cool roots, but they want sun for their leaves and flowers. With the Ernest Markham cultivar, we always, always cut them down in the spring to about six inches tall, even when you don't see any growth at all. You're just going to have crispy vines, crispy branches, and you're going to get out your pruners and They are, you may see buds when, usually with with time to prune is when the buds look like mouse ears. So they're about the size of a mouse ear, little fuzzy buds opposite to each other. And you cut the stem just above the buds and leave it alone. Let it grow. You may need to direct the vines as they grow up um, and enjoy. Because, I mean, that, like I said, that cultivar actually won an award of garden merit from the Royal Horticultural Society years ago. It is considered a very beautiful climatic. So I'm pretty confident it's alive and just by cutting it back, it will start to grow.
1: Okay, I'm keeping an eye on the clock because we are in our final segment. We have about two minutes remaining. I think this question you, you can handle, though, in, in the final uh, couple of minutes here. From okay. Linda Murta, who says, uh, from Thornton, Ontario, by the way, A couple of years ago I split and moved some large hostas to different spots in the same garden, a shaded area facing north. They come back nicely each year but don't, so grow, don't seem to grow any bigger. What's the best fertilizer for hostas to get them to grow?
2: Mm-hmm. One word, increase your soil organic matter. Okay, uh-huh. that's four words. <laughs> so get some organic matter into that soil. That's all it is. You, you've got to in, every year because a healthy living soil has lots of organic matter, lots of microorganisms that are chewing up the organic matter making it disappear, but releasing nutrients along the way. And that's what's gonna support the growth of the hospice. So you need to have you know, lots of, of living soil And, you know, speaking of living in the soil, I I just want to send a big shout out and a hug to my sweetheart, Elliot Gold, who has been just out every single day, no matter how many yards of soil I order. He's out every day hauling soil. filling the holes in the lawn, filling holes around plants. We're up to 15 yards this spring. And he just, I'm telling you, he just keeps going out there. And then he he does, uh, he works for a couple hours and he says, okay, I need a break from that job. What else do you need me to do? So I I totally appreciate it. I know. Wow. is right. So I totally appreciate his help. And, uh, the garden is going to be just that much happier for all his hard work. And, uh, Linda, same with you. Get, get your husband if you have to. Get a son, get somebody. Get some uh, good quality compost or composted um, manure or something like that around those hostas now when they're young before you can't get in there because the leaves will be up too tall. Okay, we've got to say goodbye, Charlie. Yeah, I know. Thank you, Frank. Take it easy. Good luck all with right. the raccoons. <laughs> Thank, you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Carlos. Thanks to all our great callers and emailers. Keep them coming. See you again next week.